fall to an image or face an inferno. I wonder if you have ever had to make that choice. On Saturday, the 23rd of April, 1994, at one minute past three, I had to make that choice. Fall to an image or face an inferno. Uh, to rewind a few hours before that fateful decision, I awoke on that April Saturday as excited as any young boy could be. I got into the car with my father and we, we drove south. And since it was a warm day for England, I, I took off my cherished red scarf and I trapped it in the, in the passenger window and I watched as it, it billowed proudly from the window. When we got to the capital city, my dad told me to reel the scarf in, and so I did. But when we parked the car, and he told me to leave the scarf in it, I was less conforming. But as we walked down the unruly London streets, and as the clouds of claret and blue started to swell, and as I began to be crushed by, by burly men and, and policemen on, on horseback, and as the image of two large golden hammers came into view, it became increasingly clear why my red scarf was not only in the car but hidden under the seat. Because then I remembered that my dad and I had tickets in the home end at West Ham. For those of you who have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, which I can see is the vast majority of you, let me explain. West Ham is a soccer team based in East London. And if you are an avid Harry Potter fan, you might remember that Dean Thomas, one of Harry's friends, supports them. However, in the world of reality, West Ham is not a team watched by angelic-looking wizards of Hogwarts, but rather a team worshipped by angry-looking warlords of Hackney in East London. Indeed, the Victorian roots of the soccer club are in the harsh shipbuilding industry, and hence the club's badge or image is of two threateningly crossed golden hammers. And yet through my Sunday school teacher, uh, who was honestly called Mr. Deadman, which gives you an idea of how bad these hammer-loving hooligans were, my father and I had front row tickets to watch West Ham play my beloved Liverpool. So there I sat, an undercover red in a sea of, of claret and blue, and yet confident that I would not have to reveal my true colors or compromise my love of Liverpool. But as the chants of the baying crowd grew louder and louder, and as one Liverpool player who had recently been transferred from West Ham to Liverpool was heckled and sworn at in the warm-up, just before kickoff, my father turned to me, and he said something that caused me great alarm. For he told me that if West Ham scored, I must stand and I must cheer, because if I didn't, the inferno behind me would know. But what were the chances, I thought? What were the chances my mighty Liverpool would let me down? I would not need to bow to the image of those two golden hammers. The whistle blew. The match started, a tackle came in, the ball ballooned high into the air, a West Ham midfielder flicked it through, and a veteran striker named Martin Allen chipped it high over the Liverpool goalkeeper for one of the goals of the season. And after just 60 seconds on the clock, I had to face the question, fall to an image 
or face an inferno. I took one look at the giant of the man behind me, probably the great-grandson of a Victorian shipbuilder, and I saw the fire in his eyes as the goal went in. I saw him snarl with joy and punch the air violently and then passionately kiss the image of the two golden hammers on his claret and blue shirt. And to my shame, I rose to my feet and I worshipped with him. Fall to an image or face an inferno. Well, that is what our passage is literally about this morning. For in Daniel chapter 3 that we just had read to us, three young men dedicated to God find themselves in the position of the away fans in the home end. For the Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, once driven south to a capital city, now sit amongst a sea of violent men who angrily demand that they fall at the feet of a golden image or face a Babylonian inferno. Would their faith stand in the faith of such an earthly hell? And what of us when our allegiance to God is threatened? Those are some of the key questions at the heart of this passage this morning. And we shall certainly get to that famous uh, fiery furnace as we look at verses 16 onwards. However, there is an initial threat to true faith, which is less easy to spot in the first 15 verses. For the historian Daniel, as you can see here, begins his account not with a record of faithful worshippers, but rather false worshippers. For Daniel asks his readers to stare not merely at the threat of an inferno, but at the start of the threat of an image. And in that way, Daniel, for a third week running now, leads us with a choice. Will we follow the earthly king or will we follow the heavenly king? And so big first question, first point this morning, will we fall to an image? Will we fall to an image? Verse 1, look down with me. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image. What is the purpose of this very detailed description of the king's image and this long-winded guest list? Well, the details of all the people in this opening, I think, are there to warn us about just how easy it is to do the same. Because it's very tempting for you and I, I think, to read this. It's an exhilarating historical account and to immediately read ourselves into the story as the three rebel heroes in it, the three kind of three musketeers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, that's what we tend to do with most stories, isn't it? And so from our earliest days, we do a little drama, perhaps in, in Sunday school, and our, and our teacher asks us, who's going to be a Shadrach, a Meshach, or an Abednego? When you grow up, who will have faith and, and not worship idols? And everybody puts up their hand. But the problem is, is that in reality, in Babylon, nobody puts up their hand. After all, the protracted list of the civil servants here tells us that everybody came to worship the image. Indeed, by verse 7, we read, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image. And what was the reason for this international idolatry? 
Well, please note that it wasn't, at least at the start, the threat of an inferno. For no fiery furnace is mentioned until these people are already gathered for worship. No, the image itself was enough to draw these people in. The image was enough to steal their hearts and to steal them from their work and to steal them from other gods. Accordingly, friends, as we read these opening verses and as we humbly reflect upon our own worship, that which takes our highest affection and our love and our money and our time, what we must first ask is not, am I a Shadrach, Meshach, or an Abednego, but rather, am I actually a satrap, a magistrate, or an administrator who worships an image rather than God? In fact, most pressingly of all, am I actually most like King Nebuchadnezzar, who actively built an image for worship? Well, friends, in my experience, the greatest threat to our worship of God is often not facing infernos that others may build for us, but falling for images that we build for ourselves. Let me say that again. The greatest threat to our worship of God is often not facing infernos that others may build for us, but falling for images that we build for ourselves. So what made this image so tempting? Why is the idolatry so enticing? Because on one level, as we consider the image here, we are to laugh at the thought of ever being like King Nebuchadnezzar. For we are meant to laugh as an all-powerful king flies in every member of his government from the vice president to the lowly intern on Capitol Hill to worship a statue made by men, made of metal, made just 90 feet high, and not even made to move. And Daniel's drawn out descriptions all about all the different politicians that pay their respects and all the different pipes that are played are all there to poke fun at the utter foolishness of this whole episode. And as modern Westerners, I guess many of us get the joke. Indeed, many of us, as we read this text, were no doubt quick to chuckle along with Daniel at the primitive worship on display here. For I'm guessing that none of us here will be tempted to go down to Home Depot later and to buy some kind of 90-foot metal fence post and to fashion it into some kind of image and get our neighbors to all bow down to it before bedtime. So again, what makes idols such a threat in 2022? Well, three reasons from verses 1 to 15. Here's the first. Subpoint one, idols reflect our dreams. Idols reflect our dreams. You see, the threat of idolatry for us comes not when we consider what the king's image was made of or how high the king's image was, but the threat for us comes when we understand what the king's image reflected. For this image of God reflected the king himself. Whether it looked like King Nebuchadnezzar or not, we don't know. But the idol that he called everyone else to bow down to was an idol that reflected him. For that is exactly what we saw last week, wasn't it? If you remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a, a dream or a nightmare, and the dream was of a statue partly made of gold, and the gold part signified him and his glorious rule, but the nightmare bit of the dream for him was that this statue would eventually fall and turn to dust. And so what does King Nebuchadnezzar do next? Well, in fear, he sets up the most stable statue he can of solid gold to reflect the idea that his rule and that his reign is a golden era that will never, ever fail. 
The author Tim Keller writes, we locate our idols by looking at our nightmares. Our idols appear in the things that we fear losing most. We locate our idols by looking at our nightmares. Our idols appear in the things that we fear losing most. And that was true for King Nebuchadnezzar. And that is true for us often, isn't it? That's why we're tempted to worship money and not God and get others to, to marvel at all the riches that we have rather than God because we dream of more possessions and we fear poverty. It's why we're tempted to worship sex and not God and get others to revere that the, the sex that we're having rather than revering God because we dream of more pleasure and we fear prudishness. It's why we're tempted to worship power and not God and get others to worship our rule and, and not God's rule because just like King Nebuchadnezzar, we dream of praise and we really fear being on the periphery Friends, when it comes to our worship, when it comes to the things that captivate our hearts, that, that we give generously to, that we spend our time on, when it comes to our worship, many of us, if truth be told, have far more in common with this proud king than we think. For many Western Christians today seemingly do not even need the threat of a deadly inferno that many of our Eastern brothers and sisters still face today. No, to stop us worshiping God, a simple image to ourselves will do just fine. As David Helm well observes here, we identify with the condition of the king. For as with him, the architecture of our own soul rises to the heavens in self-adulation. And if given our way, we too are tempted to call upon everyone within earshot to pay their respects to us. Friends, the truth, it is very easy for us to fall for images and not God because most of us spend all our days dreaming of ourselves. Idols reflect our dreams. Yet there's a second threat for us when it comes to idols and being like the king. Uh, for second sub-point, idols rule others ruthlessly. Idols rule others ruthlessly. On the April after afternoon in 1994, I had no idea what kind of ruthlessness uh, would have happened to me if I had failed to bow down to those two uh, golden hammers and not fallen at the feet of that West Ham striker. But as a little boy at the time, I didn't want to find out. For the chant of the thousands there, which went, I'm West Ham till I die, I'm West Ham till I die, I know I am, I'm sure I am, I'm West Ham till I die, was all I needed to know. And that, that is why idols are a problem for us. Because idolatry is not a private affair. Yes, idols reflect our private dreams, and in our self-worship, we may enthuse some family members and friends privately about worshiping us and our dreams instead of God, just like Joseph did in Genesis. But when idolatry really takes hold, it actually stops being private, and it goes public. Because you and I are not only made for worship, but we are made for corporate worship. And that's why, why people drive miles and miles and miles to see soccer matches. And they don't just watch at home in their pajamas. Because true worshipers want to gather and sing together and to encourage one another in their idols. And over time, not only to sing to encourage those who also believe in their team, 
but also to persecute those who oppose their team. Accordingly, idols which begin by reflecting our own dreams often end up ruling other people ruthlessly. And that is exactly what happens in verses 4 to 14, isn't it? A huge crowd gathers, verse 4. And there's every type of music and song, verse 5. But when three certain Jews don't sing along, verse 8, some of the crowd point them out, verse 12. And what is the response of the king? Well, it is not, never mind, these are just my own personal idols. If some don't like my dreams, and if some won't worship who I am, and if some want to stay silent, that's fine. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you have to. You have to worship my own image of me. And friends, we don't have to work very hard to see such ruthlessness on display today, do we? For what happens here in Babylon over the course of just a few months, seemingly, is essentially what has happened in the West over the course of the last few decades. For we have been told to focus upon ourselves and upon our feelings, and we've been told to to boldly express our dreams and to suppress our nightmares, and we've been told to build great images of ourselves so that people may worship us for who we think we are rather than what God reveals us to be. And so now we are told that everybody must worship and celebrate whatever we built, and it is not enough. For us to just stay silent. And friends, that is the danger when humans build idols. Idolatry promises a society of great peace. Idolatry starts, uh, worship whatever idols you like. You have your gods, I'll have mine. But when everybody worships idols of themselves, and when every member of society essentially gets to be God, society becomes just a battleground of the gods. And a failure to sing out about how everybody lives amounts to treason. Friends, there's so much more I could say here. But can you at least see from the text that when we worship idols of ourselves and not the one true God who values everybody, because all are created in his image, people actually begin to rule other people ruthlessly. And friend, I wonder if that's you secretly. And is there anyone in your life that you are now ruling with ruthlessness because they will not sing out in praise and worship the image of you? More to say there. However, third threat. Third threat of idols that I really want us to get to. For the third threat is the most serious of all. For as the story progresses, we see that, that human idolatry affects not just how we treat ourselves and not just how we treat other people, but ultimately how we treat Almighty God. For sub-point three, idols remove our knowledge of God. Idols remove our knowledge of God in the end. The end of verse 15, after delivering his evil threat about burning Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego alive, Nebuchadnezzar says something absolutely staggering to these men who will not worship him. I wonder if you can spot it. I wonder if you were as staggered as I was when I read it. Let's look again at verse 15. The king said, now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every type of music to fall down to worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you will not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God 
who will deliver you out of my hands. It is absolutely shocking, is it not? In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar had no doubt heard why these three men had refused to eat his food and drink, and yet how they became ten times better than any other trainee wise men because God was with them. And then in chapter 2, when the king became more troubled than ever and had a dream that no other wise men on earth could reveal, Nebuchadnezzar again hears all about God because Daniel reveals the truth of that dream because God revealed it to him. Indeed, at the end of the chapter having been given God's revelation that he is just a man, that his kingdom will one day be blown away like chaff, Nebuchadnezzar even cries out, chapter 2, verse 47, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. But just 17 verses later, what does he cry? Who is this God? Who do you think can save you from my powerful royal hands? Nebuchadnezzar has all the memory of a goldfish. For God had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar himself. God had revealed himself in his humanity. God had revealed himself in the people that he had blessed. God revealed himself through his very prophet Daniel, who told him of God's word. But now, the king's brain is seemingly fried. And he scoffs, who even is this God? How has it come to this? Well, the Bible tells us how. For the Bible tells us that idols, once fully established in our minds, remove our knowledge of God. Turn with me briefly to the book of Romans and chapter 1. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 883. And for context, I'm going to start at verse 18. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the disrunning of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Friends, can you see what happens when people suppress the truth about God when he has revealed himself? Can you see what happens when when people worship the, the creature, images of self rather than the creator? People's thinking becomes futile, and their foolish hearts become darkened. The brightness of Nebuchadnezzar's own image had blinded him to the creator God who made him. And friends, that is what idols do to us too. Whether we start to worship Buddha or the bank account, whether we worship bike riding or or our newborn baby, 
whether it is in the success of our jobs or our sexual status or whether it is in our sporting triumphs or our, or our schoolwork, if we give all of our minds to that which we think that we have created, we will begin to forget our Creator. For when we place other things on the throne and ask God to step aside, He will kindly oblige. For God's judgment is very much evidence in giving us exactly what we want. He will metaphorically walk straight out of one ear, and he will not perhaps enter our minds again until a Christian friend maybe mentions why they won't be doing something that we are. And we will reply to them with confusion on our faces, who is this God? Friends, the coup for the throne of your mind normally takes place very slowly. But I promise you, when idols reach a majority, they will lead you into an amnesia about God's authority, just like the king. Which is not only lamentable, but it is lethal. For friends, the message of the Bible is that God who made us to worship him will not be patient forever with our dethroning of him. Rather, he will judge us rightly for it. And particularly since he's made it so plain in creation, which is stunning, and in Christians, which are often so kind, but ultimately in Christ, who you can read about if only you make time to love the history book that you hold in your hands. Friends, God is wonderfully, wonderfully forbearing with forgetful idolaters like you and me. He is patient with Christians who spend most of their times wrestling with idols from the throne of their hearts and minds, and he welcomes the very worst idolater home. We shall see that in the next chapter, as God will even forgive Nebuchadnezzar. But friends, you must topple the idols of your mind before you forget the God who can forgive you and has made you for worship of him alone. Will we fall to an image? Will we fall to an image? That was my first question for us to consider. But my other question for us to dwell upon as we go out into this week, uh, which comes out of the second half of our passage, and is the complement to the first question in a sense, is will we face an inferno? Will we face an inferno? Because as you can see, as our story so clearly reveals, if true worshippers will not fall to images then at many periods in our lives, they may have to face an inferno. And that inferno is likely to be far worse than any face-to-face confrontation with any soccer fan. For returning to our story, that was clearly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced in verses 16 onwards. As you can see, uh, in verse 13, their boss is furious when they don't come to his stadium. But in verse 17, their boss is filled with fury and the expression on his face changes when they refuse to celebrate his goal. And so they were to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, we don't know much about what Babylonian uh, furnaces look like. Uh, Many archaeologists suggest that they were kind of cone-shaped and and set upon uh, hillsides so that fuel could be thrown in the top. But we do know that Babylonians used this awful method of execution when it came to treason. Indeed, in the British Museum, there is an inscription from a king of this era which reads, Salmoninga, my rebellious brother, 
who made war with me, they threw into a burning, fiery furnace and destroyed his life. And so we know. We know here that this is not a fairy story. We know what King Nebuchadnezzar commands here. It is not an empty threat from a maddened soccer fan. And so these three Israelite men have a clear choice before them. Simply worship the king, his image, and all his gods. Confess that he is Lord and king over all. Live like everybody else. Or experience unimaginable physical pain as fire burns away the outer layer of your skin and as you slowly suffocate to death. What could possibly, what could possibly cause them to choose the latter? Well, again, three quick things that I want us to draw our attention to. Three things that cause them to face an inferno rather than fall to an image. And three things which I hope will encourage us, if we are Christians, to keep standing for the Lord Jesus Christ in a society which is increasingly hostile to the gospel. And the first of these is that they remembered, and that we should remember too, God refines us through earthly fire. For the meticulous note-takers, this is point two, sub-point one. God refines us through earthly fire. What do these men say to the king in verse 16? Well, it's, it's thrilling kind of movie script writer stuff, isn't it? For they say, look with me, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Their bold claims are pulsating, aren't they? And yet they're not presumptuous. For these men very much have in their minds that that God may not save them from this earthly fire. For it is not the case that they say that their God will, will give them some kind of earthly victory in the end. Nor is it the case that they say that their God will give them the most earthly joy here in this life. Which is sometimes, I think, what we tell ourselves when we make sacrifices to the Lord. For many of us say to us, when when, when facing an inferno, well, I will not throw my lot in with my friends. Because in the long term, my Christianity wins here on earth. If I worship God and not the gods of my teenage friends, I will end up with the best job and the most beautiful spouse and, and, and the largest house and I will be healthier and happier than everybody else. Friends, let me rob you of that thinking right now. Christians are honestly the happiest people I've met. But Christians do not worship God solely because they believe that he will always bring them the most happiness right here, right now. For in case you're in any doubt, that is not what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thinking at this point. As they see the flames in the distance shooting out of the top of that appalling furnace, they do not think, well, I know I'll be happier in there. And so why are they willing to go through earthly fire? Well, one reason, I believe, is that they know that their refusal to to commit to the king will only set their commitment to God ablaze. For they know that the suffering of the inferno will only refine them in their holiness, in their their separation from the world, and therefore their faith in the Lord. 
And friends, that is often what earthly suffering and the fires of this world will do to our faith. Indeed, that is exactly what the Apostle Peter said was happening to Christians in the first century who were persecuted. 1 Peter 1.6, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may result in praise. Sometimes, friends, it is only when we feel the flames of this world that we feel the realness and the riches of our faith. Sometimes it is only when we separate ourselves from the wicked crowd that we feel that the closeness of God and the knowledge that he is with us in the fire, just as these men did. And so, friends, what would it be like? What would it be like for you and I to see the oncoming fiery threats of the world in that way? Have you ever considered that the suffering that you may face from a dear family member for following the Lord Jesus and not them is an occasion for him to refine your love for him even further? Have you ever considered that the heat that you feel at work for your stance on various moral issues brings with it the wonderful prospect for you to see the genuineness of your faith? And have you ever considered that the loneliness that you feel when you don't join in with all your friends and colleagues will most likely result in you knowing the closeness of God right there with you more than ever before? How kind of the Lord. How kind of the Lord to refine us through earthly fire. And as the fire was brought forth, this is what these men believed. And remembered, and this is what we should remember too. Have a second reason. Second reason why we can face an inferno. Second thing we're to remember when we are tempted to give up on God and just go with the flow, God rescues us from eternal fire. Sub point two, point two, God rescues us from eternal fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make their stand, and the king responds by, by turning up the heat to the max. He orders the fire to be seven times hotter than normal so that his guards melt in the heat. And so verse 21, these men are judged by the king and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tied up together and they are thrown into the flames, hats and all. And the evil king watches with glee as they fry to a crisp. Except miraculously, they do not. Nebuchadnezzar appears through the grate and falls off his throne in astonishment. For not only are these three men alive, unhurt, and walking around in the fire, but there is a fourth man with them, who, verse 25, looks like a son of the gods. Who is this son? And what is the point that God is making here in history? Well, we must be honest and, we, and, and say that we, we don't know who this son is for sure, but with the whole storyline of Scripture in mind, we are to recall the point that God always makes through a rescuing son. For the picture that God is clearly alluding to here is that he will rescue finally through his son. That the true king will rescue his people 
through his flames of eternal judgment, through his son, and only by his son. One of the central themes of the Bible is that every single one of us here is heading for fire. And the eternal judgment of the true king for not bowing to him and him alone. Well, that is the exact message of the loving Lord Jesus. That was the message of the most loving man who has ever lived. For Jesus said, Matthew 13, one day the true king, the son of man, will gather up all who have not submitted to God's law and that all unrighteous people will be thrown into the fiery furnace. He who has ears, let him hear. And friends, the shocking but the true message of Jesus is that every single one of us here, you and I, are unrighteous, and that every single one of us, you and I, are headed for fire. Because there have been so many times when we've been far more like Nebuchadnezzar than these three men. And friends, that is certainly true of me. And I trust if you're honest enough, that is true for you too. But the wonderful news, that the wonderful news as showcased here in glorious technicolor is that God rescues us from an eternal fire through his son. For Jesus promised to take all the heat for our rebellion against his rule and reign. And Jesus promised to take all the fires of hell for all the images that we have set up instead of God. And Jesus at the cross amazingly did take the full and just wrath of God so that we might be able to stand in God's blazing holiness and not be burnt by the fire. Indeed, it's interesting, isn't it, at the end of verse 27. Not a hair of their head was singed, that their cloaks were not harmed, that no smell of fire had come upon them, and yet that the fourth man does not come out. Presumably, the one like a son of God was singed and harmed, and had fire come upon him for the sake of God's gracious rescue. Friends, what a wonderful picture of Jesus. And what motivation for facing the inferno of this world that we might be like Christ uh, in his sufferings. And what motivation to keep going amid all the heat, knowing that if we fail miserably to be bold, that Jesus has already taken away all our rebellion. Will we face an inferno well, I think that you and I will. If we remember that God refines us through earthly fire and that God rescues us through eternal fire and that very finally, God reveals himself when we serve him. God reveals himself when we serve him. Final point, hold on, just three minutes left and we're done. What is the upshot? What is the upshot of this whole glorious episode? What is the result of these men's stance and their salvation? Well, the result, verse 29, is that the king begins to remember who God is. Their amazing act of public valor amid all the earthly fire and their trust of God who could rescue starts to undo all the king's idolatry. At the end of verse 15, the king scoffed. Who is this God who can save? But at the end of verse 29, the king says, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. The men were, as the king kept on repeating, mere servants of the God Most High. They were, in a sense, nothing very special. 
but through their faithfulness in trial, they revealed the salvation of God. And friends, when we take our stance against images, and we, when we are willing to face an inferno, and so follow our, our suffering Savior for, for the sake of His glory, we not only grow closer to God ourselves, but we begin to reveal God to others such that the gospel begins to spread throughout all our land. In 1554, two faithful ministers of the gospel in England, Nicholas Ridley, Bishop of London, and Hugh Latimer, Bishop of Worcester, effectively stood before royalty. For both men were known for their wholehearted commitment to God and to his message. They preached the Bible in English and, and not Latin so that the common man and woman could know who God was and worship him in faith and truth. And Latimer and Ridley removed images and icons from their churches so that people might worship God alone and not images of Mary and other saints. And when they were asked to bow to the queen and to lay aside all the truth of their worship and to bow down to all her false ways of worship, they did not fall to images. And so they faced an inferno. And so just a few months later in a public street, both Latimer and Ridley were bound back to back and they were burned at the stake. And yet sadly, the, the, the firewood which had been laid around Ridley had been laid around so poorly and was so green that it would not burn quickly. And since the flames could not reach his head, Ridley cried out in pain. But his 80-year-old counterpart, Latimer, seeing the hundreds of people that had gathered and realizing that, that Ridley still had the opportunity amid his great suffering to reveal God most high to all the people in England, cried, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man, for we shall to this day light such a candle that by God's grace in England, I trust it shall never be put out. And friends, you know what? That candle, which represented their burning bodies, and most of all, the message of their suffering Savior has not gone out in England. For through their faithful service to God, the message of God most high was revealed to the very people who had opposed them. And that, my friends, in perhaps less graphic ways, is what you may get to do too in your country and in your city and in your street and in your office, and in your school, and even in your home, if you do not fall to images, but face the inferno. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are both wounded and strengthened in heart by your glorious word to us this morning.
Well, Father, we confess that we see ourselves in both characters. Father, we confess the many ways in which we have worshipped images, particularly images of ourselves. And though we are made in your image, and though all men and women and children are so precious, valuable in your sight, Father, we confess the many ways in which we have worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And Father, we see the terrible fruits of that. We see that in the ways in which we often treat others. And we see that in the ways in which we treat you. And Father, we are sorry. And yet, Father, also here, we see, we see ourselves in those three men. And so, Father, we, we praise you for the ways in which you refine us through trial. And most marvelously of all, Father, we remember your Son saving us, saving those who come to you in repentance and faith. Father, we thank you for the refuge that we find in him. We thank you that Jesus saves us from that eternal fire and that he promises to be with us through every earthly trial. And so, Father, we ask and pray that you would help us not to fall to the things of this world, whatever the cost. And we ask this for your glory. And in Jesus' name.